Hello and welcome to Africa Now, the podcast that takes a fresh look at events on the continent and tries to make sense of them. I'm Martine Dennis. Today, King Charles heads to Kenya in his first Commonwealth visit as head of state. What kind of reception awaits him? What benefit could Cyril Ramaphosa bring to the Israel-Gaza war? South Africa's president offers his services amid a row over his government's supposed sympathies for Hamas. And as Nollywood come of age, we've been watching Nigeria's The Black Book film that's having global success. Well, joining me to pick over these stories and no doubt add a few of their own is Donu Kogbera, journalist and political analyst, and Patrick Smith, editor of Africa Confidential. Uh, Donu, uh, you're in the Nigerian capital, Abuja. What have you been up to? Okay, so woke up this morning hoping for a quiet week. Uh, it was not to be. Uh, apparently, the State House of Assembly in the capital of the oil-producing region has been firebombed as the old governor and the new governor come to blows uh, over, it's a power struggle. And uh, so that means there's going to be an awful lot of drama this week. And that sounds classic Nigerian, doesn't it? Uh, Patrick, what about you? What have you yeah. been up to? Yeah, I'm, I'm um, heading off to South Africa this evening. I'm going to an anti-corruption conference in um, the Western Cape, opened by Ronald Lamola, the Minister of Justice, who has been um, bigged up as a potential leader of tomorrow. So it's going to be really interesting seeing him speak and particularly on this subject that has wrecked the South African economy over the past 10 years or so to see what new ideas they're going to be coming up with. Very interesting indeed. But uh, without more ado, let's go straight to speak to Joel Cabazzo. Joel Cabazzo is uh, in London and he's going to be talking us through the issues surrounding uh, King Charles's visit uh, to Kenya, this being his first trip to the Commonwealth as head of state. Um, now, Joel Cabazzo is a man of many talents, as, as some of you will know, but we want to we want to pick his brains particularly uh, on the matter of King Charles going to Kenya, not only because uh, he is a, a man of the world, but he's also a former spokesman for a, a, a Commonwealth Secretary General of another era, Don McKinnon. And uh, so you know quite a bit about what's going on behind the scenes. Um, you were also in Nairobi, weren't you, just last week? What was the mood there? Yes, there is some excitement about the king coming, but actually uh, a lot of people focus more on the day-to-day -day grind, you see, because they have got so many other challenges that they're facing. And so the royal visit is, um, is of course, on the agenda, but not perhaps in the way it would be when I've been in other Commonwealth countries when, they, when the monarch is about to visit. Do, do you think, I mean, you were in the Commonwealth for a while, um, Joel, do you think Britain is immune from this um, general anti-colonial push we're seeing in uh, against the European powers? I mean, France has just got kicked out of Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger. And there's been a coup in Gabon. Their favorite bagman in Gabon was kicked out uh, in, 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 in August. Um, the Dutch uh, monarch has just been down to South Africa and failed to impress, I think, uh, South Africans generally. Um, last year, the Belgian monarch turned up in Kinshasa and failed to say anything of value. 
in terms of reviewing his country's appalling history in Congo. W what's happening to the Brits? Um, do you think we're going to see some demonstrations in, in, in Kenya? Surely younger people must look at that history and wonder what the hell this guy is doing here. <laughs> um, I think yeah, it's funny you also mentioned Gabon, you know, one of the newest Commonwealth uh, member countries where there's just been exactly. Yeah. Um, I think it's just Gabon being a member of the Commonwealth. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand that. But carry on. But I think they are, uh, I'm not sure that um, you're going to get the same effect you've had in West Africa in the Anglo section. And I mean, if you recall, I did live um, in a Francophone Africa for a good three years. And um, the grip on the French versus, uh, you know, on those countries was so much harder compared to the loose relationship that Britain had with its former colonial uh, co colonial countries. So in that sense, there wasn't there isn't that pent up emotion. You will get you may get some demonstrations because, of course, there is still queries about restitution, especially from the Mau Mau days in uh, in Kenya. There are still people who are alive who say they've never been um, compensated. And they look at this, remember this was at a time before they had independence, so they saw the monarch as the, um, the head of uh, this country that was oppressing them. So you will have some of those kind of... Uh, the demonstrations or the representations. I don't expect them to be widespread because of the things I was saying before. I think people have got other concerns. Oh, can I can I read uh, give you a quick read out then of the palace statement because I find it particularly interesting. Um, apparently, Prince Prince Charles, King Charles, of course, um, is going to acknowledge the more painful aspects of the UK and Kenya's shared history, including the emergency, i.e., the Mau Mau, uh, taking time to deepen his understanding of the wrongs suffered uh, by the people of Kenya. I mean, what's that all about? What does that mean? <laughs> it, it, it is trying, it's what we call in uh, communications, getting ahead of the issue. The, you know, the palace is very well, <laughs> the palace is very well aware that there's no way that Kenyan journalists, and as uh, you and Patrick and Donna will know, they are quite robust in, um, Kenyan journalists are quite robust in their sort of questioning, that this issue will be raised. And they are, as I said, there are still people who are sort of uh, living from that era and have been in the, in the papers recently. So I think this is an attempt to get ahead of that issue, to say that we do know that these these terrible things uh, did happen. And uh, that, you know, but however, it, if you notice that it will then uh, veer very swiftly on to that. However, we now live in an era where we are equals and we have friendship and we are on a different footing. And Donny, what are your thoughts? Look, the British are entitled to a monarchy. If they want one and they're ready to pay for one, no problem. What I don't understand is why the rest of us should be interested in their monarchy. The whole Commonwealth concept seems rather defunct in this day and age. Um, far be it from me to say that Enoch Powell had anything good to add to the world, but he did once make he did once make the observation that the Commonwealth was had nothing in common and no wealth. So, you know. Like most of what he said, factually rubbish. <laughs> but, well, yeah, you're English, so you'd like to think that there are all these brownies and duckies who are, we could all hold hands and sing, ging, gang, gooly, gooly, no, gooly, gooly. Um, you're just, 
just looking at those the countries in the Commonwealth and their share of the global <laughs> global GDP, you know, he's talking. Crap. Yeah, but can I finish, please? I'm an African, so I'm allowed to have a view on this. Yeah. That is not Anglo-centric. And the point being that, okay, yeah, of course, I mean, you know, power has been provocative as usual and a bit unpleasant. An Anglo-centric. <laughs> but the, the point being that, yes, of course, we all speak English and, you know, we, the Indians, uh, you know, whoever. But what's, I, I don't really see the point of the Commonwealth anymore. But people are queuing up to join, Donu, aren't you? I mean, you pointed out, was it Gabon that, that is num number 56? So what so what do they get out of it, Joel? I mean, you're no better than anyone. What exactly is the attraction? I think the attraction is being at the table with some big countries. And one of the things that I think a lot of people miss, uh, the Commonwealth, is that it's actually made up mostly of very small countries, Countries that perhaps would never get a hearing at any other big table, shall we say. I mean, you're talking about countries like Fiji, Nauru. You're talking about Barbados. You're talking about, uh, you, you, you know, um, um, it's, it's very much, as I said, small countries and countries whose issues, whether it's climate change, whether it is harmful tax, whether it's whatever, aren't always at the fore of the international agenda. So there is an attraction for a lot of those kind of states, you know, uh, that, and that's what really brings them to the table. And in a way, the Francophones were using it in some ways to get it to sort of loosen this grip on, uh, you know, that France had on some of those countries, but also to feel, you know, whether we like it or not, in business terms, London remains the center of finance. You know, I mean, yes, of course, France is a, a big center but london is and they some of them see it as being part of this grouping will help them advance their own agenda the truth is the matter of the matter is that the Commonwealth is no longer you know this sort of institution that it used to be countries don't rely on it say very much anyway for aid or technical assistance in the same way so in many ways i mean what it is is really getting a seat at the table where you can sit next to india the fifth largest uh, power economic power in the world you, you can sit with australia you can sit with the uk and so um i think those are the things that people really look to. The concrete benefits, I would say, is that some of their issues, for instance, on the issue of climate change, uh, if you are uh, Maldives, you, you know, the Commonwealth has been championing, uh, you know, the fact that you're sinking and uh, you will need help, as well as many other countries, not only in Asia, but in the Pacific. So those countries feel there is that kind of value. It is less, perhaps, of value of a lot of uh, uh, countries that are much bigger and increasingly less so for even African countries, you see. So that's why I say that uh, increasingly it's very much a club where, you know, small countries can at least benefit and have their issues, for instance, champion at the United Nations under the Commonwealth umbrella. So for those countries, now we will hardly ever get a, <laughs> a view <laughs> in many other clubs and societies. Has it given up on the political agenda? You know, there used to be this Commonwealth Action Group. So if you had a coup or you, um, yeah, you fixed an election, uh, the Commonwealth would steam into action, send a delegation down there and have a stern words with the new regime. Is that still likely to happen or only for places like Cambia? 
Well, put it this way, it is still happening. And uh, the, late, the latest country to be suspended is Gabon. And uh, that happened, uh, you know, mid-September, shortly after the coup would take place. And it's one of the it's the last country to join. So there's some irony in that. But then, of course, uh, you know, it goes back to this whole debate about, uh, you, you know, you had an election in Gabon, which was, of course, overthrown, um, hence the coup. But then, of course, you also had a system of government whereby I think it had been two people since 1967. To what extent <laughs> is that uh, democracy as we know it? And so there are, I think uh, the Commonwealth Minister Action Group does face those challenges of what exactly do we, uh, do, we do. But it went through its rules. It did suspend Gabon. So it, it hasn't given up. The question is whether the impact is as great. You, uh, and to that, I would say one more thing, that somehow Zimbabwe is trying to get back into the Commonwealth, believe it or not. And they've been trying for years. So for some reason, countries like to be a member of this group. Sorry, if I remember rightly, Joel, uh, wasn't Zimbabwe your old boss's first great test? He landed in the job as, as Commonwealth Secretary General in 2000, I believe, and pretty much as soon as he'd put his feet yeah. under the desk, he had to go off to Harare. Yes, and uh, I was uh, with him and uh, <laughs> and uh, on many of those trips, and it turned out, of course, that it was by, you know it was up to me to sort of uh, announce the expan the expelling of Zimbabwe uh, from the Commonwealth. At the time, you know, well, Zimbabwe said it was, uh, it, you know, I I announced the suspension. Zimbabwe then, of course, when we were in Nigeria. At the summit, said uh, it was leaving, and I sort of had to handle that. So yes, uh, Zimbabwe, of course, said terrible things about the Commonwealth. Didn't want to to ever be part of this colonial institution. But here is the irony: the rules that Patrick mentioned, whereby you you look at governance and suspend a country uh, if it has violated those rules, are called the Harare Declaration, the Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group on the Harare Declaration. So here is the irony. Now, 20 years later, Zimbabwe has been asking to rejoin, and the Commonwealth Secretariat has sent, I think it is three missions, to assess whether it is fit and proper to come back into a group that uh, espouses the Harare Declaration. Can I just ask Patrick? in a non-hostile way this time, because Patrick and myself have been sparring for like 30 or 40 years. Um, Patrick, your response earlier, your knee-jerk response earlier indicates that you see the Commonwealth as a good and productive thing. Do you? I, I think the association of economies like India and um, you know, <laughs> potentially Pakistan, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, I mean, big countries across Africa and Asia, plus Canada. I mean, the potential is there for something really great. I mean, I absolutely agree. It, it's, you know, it's a sad organization at the moment. I think the, the first thing uh, I would say uh, is the headquarters should be moved somewhere else. That, that would give it a sense that it's something to do with the 21st century, probably Delhi or uh, Pretoria, Johannesburg, but uh, it should stop being such a colonial institution. And that, that requires a lot of re reconfiguration. Well, it's, in it's interesting that those that want to leave, like uh, many of the Caribbean islands that are suggesting that they have a referendum and Barbados has actually done it, 
they've uh, removed the head of state, the monarch, as their head of state, and they've become a republic, but they're still wanting to remain members of the Commonwealth. Multilateralism is the only way to go these days, isn't it, in whichever format it takes. I think it's time for us to move on. Uh, I want to thank you, Joel Cabazzo. It's so nice to talk to you. And uh, we hope to catch up with you again quite soon. Thank you so much for joining us on our first edition, Joel Cabazzo. We are going to go next to South Africa, to Cape Town, because we're going to be speaking to Tembisa Fakude, who's the CEO of South Africa's Mail and Guardian Group. He's also the director of the Africa-Asia Dialogues. That's a, a think tank. Tembisa, so uh, Cyril, Cyril has made this offer to mediate uh, between Israel and Gaza. Um, do you have any idea as to how his offer has been received? Well, I don't think it's going to work because South Africa, unfortunately, has taken a very activist um, position when it comes to its foreign policy on Israel. And um, they've lost the, the seat on the table of negotiations. For me, at least, I think that um, they've lost that opportunity to um, play a role because they've taken sides. Um, today, we've had uh, our minister in the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, Nali Depando, Again, you know, calling Israel um, actions in Gaza is genocide. So, well, of course, I do agree with her, but I don't think that the position that South Africa has taken so far will actually afford them a position. Similarly with Ukraine, they were very too pro-Russia, and for them to, at the 11th hour, decide that they want to mediate in Ukraine, it was laughable uh, to at least many of us. Uh, well, many people have pointed out what seems to be a rather complicated relationship, almost schizophrenic relationship between South Africa and Israel. Israel obviously is has uh, great trade ties with South Africa. I think it's the it's the largest trading partner on the continent. Um, South Africa gets quite a lot of military assistance and and just aid and techn technological uh, transfer comes from Israel. Um, why do they take such a a strong pro-Palestinian position um, and anti-Israel, therefore, when in the past, of course, so many South African Jews have been at the forefront of the uh, struggle against apartheid. Well, first of all, it's because of what we continue to see on our television screens. Um, it's a normal reaction from that you'll expect from any human being who sees the current genocide evil that's taking place at the moment. In Gaza, so there will be that reaction. One. Secondly, South Africa went through the similar experiences, if not worse. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have lived um, and worked in Gaza, and I'm a South African. So, you know, I come from Soweto. We were never bombed by F-16s. Um, no, we subjected to collective punishment whenever there was a a problem. Timbisa, I mean, whatever happens in Gaza, if there is a some sort of ceasefire, and there has to be at some point, obviously. Um, in terms of the reconfiguration of the Palestine-Israel relationship, trying trying to, trying to go back to those negotiations for a two-state solution, wouldn't South Africa at that stage have a role to play, given that it's brought communities together for a common political objective before? Well, as I said earlier on, I think South Africa has shot itself in the foot in this regard in terms of it taking a pro-act, a very activist position. Uh, in this regard. And I don't think all parties involved in this will accept South Africa as a mediator moving forward because they've shown um, they are very biased towards justice. They're biased towards Palestine. And I think 
we have just lost a seat on that table. Um, take us back a little bit, Tembisa, if you would, and explain to us, if you can, um, what appears to be, or certainly an accusation that's being uh, raised against the foreign minister, Nelody Pandor, as being more sympathetic to Hamas, uh, not just the Palestinians uh, in total, but Hamas in particular, rather than Fatah, rather than the PA, rather than the PLO. I mean, how true is that? How correct is that impression? Well, she has refuted that. She said that she she made that call, um, which has raised concerns. She made the call because she wanted to offer humanitarian aid to um, to to Gaza, which is governed by Hamas. So you couldn't call Fatah or PLO or anyone else um, in Gaza if you want to assist, because the party that's governing at the moment in Gaza is Hamas, and that's a justification. But again, this is another. Uh, flip-flopping and clumsiness in terms of foreign relations that, um, you know, she continues uh, to find herself. It's interesting also, isn't it, that um, there was some time ago when the Palestinians, uh, the PLO and uh, Fatah and the PA generally adopted what was the model, if you like, the strategic model that was adopted by the ANC, by the, the, by the liberation movements in South Africa. And they even used the language of apartheid now as as a, as part of their diplomatic strategy. Uh, do you think that's going to have to change now? Because it, it seems as though it's been blown out of the water. Well, South Africa is the birthplace of the um, Palestine Solidarity Movement and the BDS campaign. Following the conference we had in 2001, if you remember, the um, racism conference, it, stopped, it was dubbed as a racism conference in, in, in Durban. And that's why you have the lexicon used largely within the BDS movement in the Palestinian solidarity movement, it borrows a lot from the South African struggle. And South South Africa, of course, continues to inform um, the Palestine solidarity movement because of the experiences. But what I think has been positive that came from South Africa is that they've been very clear in terms of differentiating between the Zionist movement and Jews. Because as you correctly said in your opening, we do have a lot of... um, Jews in this country played a critical role uh, in our struggle against apartheid, but also they continue to play a very important role in the Palestine solidarity movement. Uh, people such as Ronnie Kastrels, you know, uh, Tandy Jane Lipman and others. Um, so that the, these Jews, progressive, who are still now continuing to be involved in, in the pro-Palestinian struggle. What, why do you think it is the case in, in Southern Africa, or all the, the neighboring countries, thinking Zambia, Zimbabwe, Angola, Mozambique, played this critical role in your struggle against apartheid. But it seems until those uh, horrific attacks on the 7th of October, um, the regional countries really just were prepared to sort of put the Palestinian issue on one side. Israel is very active in Africa. They are on a charm offensive. Um, you remember when um, when the uh, uh, Fakir Ahmad, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, brought in Israel through the back door to uh, on an observer uh, status within the AU. Naledi Pando went on to um, oppose that move. And she tells us that out of the 54 African countries, only three supported her. <laughs> 51 of them didn't want to be part of it. They supported the Israel inclusion as, as, as the observer within the AU. So it tells you that Israel is really working hard in terms of making sure that it gains support within within the African continent. And we continue to see that happening. The last vote, for example, at the UN um, uh, General Assembly, Ethiopia, which is a seat of power, 
voted in favor of Israel. So it's it's quite troubling. Okay, so um, Chandisa, do you think that South Africa and indeed other African countries can really afford to be as externally focused as some of them are? I mean, there's all this debate about what South Africa feels about Israel, Palestine, or should or shouldn't do. We have the same issues in Nigeria, where we recently saw the president of Nigeria trying to move into Niger to participate in a conflict there. Um, what do you think about people who've got too many problems of their own intervening in everyone else's business? Yeah, it's a good point. I think South Africa often bites more than it can chew, uh, one, but at the same time, they see themselves as, I mean, South Africa is reliant largely on its export of foreign uh, relational or international relations because of the Mandela uh, inheritance that we've had, political inheritance that we've had. So they, proud, they, they pride themselves of that and they see themselves playing that role. Um, and they also they see themselves as the pan-Africanist leader in terms of foreign relations. They, for a very long time, influenced the uh, AU uh, international relations. As you know, many smaller countries in Africa tend to pick it back when it comes to international relations with what AU says. And South Africa has been the loudest mouth of the AU for a very long time. And I think things are changing now. But Senator Ramaphosa, very ambitious, he led that seven-nation uh, African leader to go and speak sense to Putin and and, um, and Volodymyr Zelensky, which was not very successful, but that in itself was very ambitious for an African leader to do that. But, what, but why would why would the Ukraine delegation have been successful? I mean, if you think about it, why would Zelensky or Putin particularly care what we think? Well, they wouldn't have cared, but it was a, it was a spin from Cyril Ramaphosa after he flip flopped and messed up the relations and at the US threatened to pull out to pull South Africa out of Agoa, which is the African Growth and uh, Opportunities Act. Uh, and because of that, Ramaphosa had to play politics to say, you know, I'm a neutral guy, even though that even though his statements prior to that uh, sent very mixed messages and offended Americans who happened to be the biggest partner in terms of trading part of the unit with, with South Africa. So it was a spin move. Thank you. Tembisa, it's been really good talking to you and really good to get your, your uh, analysis. Thank you very much indeed, Tembisa Fakudu. Now, have we all seen the black book? Have we, Patrick, Donu, have we seen it yet? Well, I delegated watching of the black book to Patrick. Yeah. Once I found out it was a thriller. I don't do thrillers. Don't blame Patrick. Don't blame <laughs> Patrick, Donu. Anyway. No, I told Patrick to watch it and give me the yeah. highlights. Yeah, the, the highlights are that it is absolutely compelling. It's really ask you to kind of revise your view that uh, thrillers are not suitable watching. You know, you've got you've got to get into it. I think it's it's amazing story. It's 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 put together um with a lot of nuances. And what I liked about it was that it um it's not just a sort of a, a remodeling of the Western standard, you know, crime cop thriller type blockbuster action movie it's got a it's fundamentally it's a nigerian product i prefer the wedding party the gilmore girls we can we can find out a bit more about why the black book has had such roaring success uh, because it's nigeria's first international success or at least one of them and it's topping the netflix charts in south korea it's doing really well in south america and it showcases the potential of African cinema pretty much. Uh, we can chat to the filmmaker and journalist Dika Afoma, 
who's uh, not far away from you, I imagine, uh, Donny, because he's also in the Nigerian capital, Abuja. Dika, thank you for talking to us. All right, how significant is this film then for the Nigerian film industry? Very significant, I would say. Um, it represents the possibilities of the talent here, um, what, what we're able to do. Um, when I read foreign, foreign publications on the theme, the, the, the remark is that it was made with just $1 million. I mean, of course, comparatively, when you compare with Hollywood themes and um, other international themes, it's, it, it seems like a small amount of money. But um, for Nollywood, it's, it's major, it's, it, it's big. There are only about a handful of productions from here that are made with, with a budget that large, I would say. And how was it funded, Dika? It, um, and so the director uh, is a tech and marketing executive. And so he pulled, he, he pulled um, from the tech community. So we have a lot of, a couple of um, tech founders and tech CEOs um, funding the film. And um, I mean, the tech industry is sort of like also booming currently in Nigeria. And um, he tapped into that. And um, yeah, that, that's how the film was funded. Uh, is, and is that is that a a model of a funding model that perhaps could be replicated? Do you think? I think so, and I think a lot of a couple of like tech founders are interested in funding things. Um, there, there's there's been a recent a recent um, I think capital funds um, they are setting up like um, and so tech founders tech execs are uh, seeing the potential in investing in filmmaking too. Patrick has given it a, a glowing review. He loved it. Um, what do you think um, are the aspects of, to this film that make it so so good and so compelling? Production value, I would say production value being, uh, uh, we, we do not pay attention to production value here. Um, so sometimes, I would say sometimes. We, it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a part of filmmaking that we invest in. Um, usually because we don't have um, enough talents for it. And so with this, um, there was a careful attention to production design, cinematography. The, the photography is brilliant. Um, we have one of the, the best cinematographers from, from, I would say, from Africa um, um, are they, um, who, 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 who handled that and, um, and then uh, um, just, just like took their time and put in a lot of work to, to make it stunning. Right, right, yeah. right. Do you think what's the potential for Nigeria to really project itself through this medium? I mean, everyone talks about the soft power of Hollywood yeah. and so on. The world sees America through the eyes of its movie directors and so on. Do you think, I mean, Nigeria gets such a bad rap on the 419 and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you think that the, the, the movie industry in Nigeria, now these films are getting out on Netflix, number one in South Korea, watched on airlines going mm -hmm. back and forth across the Atlantic. Is there a real chance for Nigeria to kind of right, reposition itself? Sure, exactly, exactly. And I think a couple of Nigerians in the tech industry, entertainment industry have been doing that. I mean, we, we, we have um, Bonaboy, Whiskey, Davido touring the world to our savage um, terms. Um, these incredible musicians from Nigeria and, and, and um, yeah, they're showing the, the, the potential of the talent here. We have, we've had uh, other themes also from Nollywood that have been doing well globally. We had Mami Wata, um, directed by C.J. Abasi. That was, that, that, that had its like world premiere at the Sundance um, Film Festival and um, it, 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 it went home with the Best Cinematography Award. You know, um, would I say like shifting the narrative about like what Nigerians are and what we're capable of and um, 
yeah, they've, been, they've, they've also enjoyed um, international reception. So given that this is such a, it's such a big industry, isn't it? What sort of support do you get from the government? What do young filmmakers like you uh, do in order to, to, to hone your skills? We go on YouTube uh, and, you know, watch, watch, uh, so it's, we mostly learn on our own. But um, um, we've had um, governments like Lagos State Government um, really supporting um, small, um, the, um, the, the, the short, the, the like short film schools that, that run for, for about a few months. And um, they, they partner with some um, production companies to, um, and, and they offer education free. But um, I don't know how sustainable that model is because it's 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 for a few months. I mean, you you're not going to learn everything about directing in a few months. You're not going to learn um, production design in a few months, in in two or three months, in a, in a few weeks. And so we need more we need more investment in that field. Uh, when people think investments, they think um, funding films. But 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 I think it would be um, it would it, w- it would benefit the industry more if we looked at film schools more, setting up film schools here that can't run for years at least. Now now, Dika uh, Donu obviously um, prefers the uh, sort of rom com, uh, historic drama type film. What could you say to her? that uh, might uh, encourage her to watch The Black Book, having said that she doesn't like thrillers? I, I guess she enjoyed The Wedding Party, and that had, you know, like Nigeria's, um, one of our, one of our, our legendary, legendary actors, RMD. So RMD is also in The Black Book, and he's leading this one. And so I think it would be, it, it be fun to see him play something different from from the rom-coms that um, he, he's, he's known with. Oh, you know, I don't like car chases. I don't like violence. Is it? Is there lots of violence in it? <laughs> Quite a bit of violence, uh, yeah. But 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 it, it also has like some of. Um, it also has a bit of drama. It, um, it has some emotional turning points, and so yeah, that that also is something to look forward to. I've noticed that on a lot of American dramas, whether big screen or television, Nigerians are more and more involved in the acting and the production. So. Do you think that um, Nollywood will one day be able to provide a platform for Nigerian actors abroad to come home and play roles? Will you ever have enough money to pay those people, the kind of money they used to in America, for example? I mean, um, sure. I mean, we've had a couple of Nigerian actors, um, a couple of like Nigerian actors in international films play roles in... Um, in you know local films here, we had Hakim K. Kazim in Kula Falayan's um, Anukulabo last year. We've had um, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, even even the likes of David Oyelowo have talked about, and John Boyega have talked about have talked about um, producing films locally here. And, and so um, it will, will also be interesting as um, some of the some of the Nigerian actors are doubling as producers to also come home and you know invest here. We. We we are looking we are looking at more investments here, and um, yeah, it would be nice if they also like contributed. So I mean, you're very young, so you don't remember what it was like for people like me. I mean, I'm in my early sixties. Honestly, there was a time when we were growing up. The worst thing you could tell your parents was that you wanted to go into music, drama, or sport. But <laughs> with people like Bernard Boy and Chiwetel and all these Nollywood people begin to do so really well, and of course the footballers, <laughs> um, parents now are much more enthusiastic 
about um, giving their young people the opportunity not to be doctors or lawyers or engineers. So, but is there any of that type of pressure still? Is there any of it in your generation? Are your parents worried and do they want you to be a dentist instead? No, no not exactly. I, I think, I think they've, they've mostly been supportive. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Vika Oforma. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Now, before we go, Donu, bring us up to date on the controversy that I know you're following minute by minute surrounding the president, of course, the Nigerian president. Is he still in Asso Rock, <laughs> despite the efforts of Atiku Abubakar, among others? The Supreme Court has ruled. Is that the end of the story? Um, you know, the thing with Nigerians that never ceases to amaze me is they're very docile and non-reactive. I mean, they'll complain interminably and they'll flood the internet with all sorts of, you know, factual and, you know, speculative, hostile comments about Tinubu. Um, but when the Supreme Court announced against many people's wishes that he was to stay as president, how do I put it? There's no passionate chorus of dissent. So, yeah, I think he's probably going to be there for a while, unless Nigerians suddenly decide to become radical and to, to fight it. Um, Nigerians, are, they surprise me, quite honestly. I've never known people who complain so much and do so little. Has it resolved any of the, the court case? Has it resolved any of the issues, apart from the fact that Tinubu is now the duly constituted president, according to the court? Because all those issues about forgery and presenting forged certificates. Where does that go? Well, one thing we've learned is that Tinubu is very thick-skinned. I have to tell you that if I had faced the barrage of ridicule and criticism that he has faced over his family background, his education, his alleged forgery, election rigging, you name it, I, I, I would have run, in, run away and, and resigned and hidden somewhere, you know? But he's very thick-skinned, doesn't seem to bother him much, um, and then he's dealing with a population that's surprisingly docile. I don't think any of those issues have gone away. They're still there. Uh, whether they'll rumble on for the next four years and keep coming up again and again and again, even if he in, you know, decides to, to run again in 2027, which is the next election, only, only God knows, quite frankly. Um, another thing I was going to say, though, is that when the Supreme Court judgment was issued last Thursday, you would have expected an outpouring of celebration from his supporters. I didn't see anything like that. I didn't get any joyous, happy phone calls from his supporters. I'm not aware that there were any parties or... It's kind of... this. I don't know if we've been desensitized. So we're neither capable of uprisings nor capable of jubilation. And on that note, Donu, thank you very much indeed. Gosh. Well, that ends this edition of Africa Now. Actually, it is our first, as you may have picked up, and we'd really like to hear your thoughts and suggestions. Our email is africanowpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I'm on X or Twitter, whatever it's called now, at Martine Dennis. We recorded this on Monday the 30th of October 2023 with the technical skills of Matthew McConway. Anne Busby is our producer, and our original music was by Enric Adam. So thanks to all our guests, and from Donny, Patrick and me, thank you for your company. 